Welcome to the Whitefields Community Church Podcast. For more information about our church, including location and service times, visit us online at whitefieldschurch.com. If you are blessed by this message, please consider sharing it with others and leaving a rating or review on your favorite podcast app. Today's message comes from our series, So That You May Believe, the study of the seven signs Jesus performed in the Gospel of John. Hey, good morning, everybody. Glad to see you. Uh, Please open in your Bibles to the Gospel of John, chapter 20. And we are completing our series. We're finishing our series today. We've been going for the last seven weeks. So this is actually the seventh week in which we've been studying through the Gospel of John by looking at the signs that Jesus performed that are recorded for us in this book, which point us to and show us who Jesus is and what he came to do. So we're in the Gospel of John, chapter 20 this morning. Please bow your heads with me and let's pray as we open God's Word. Lord, we thank you that you love us enough to speak to us, to reveal your heart and your will and your desires to us, to show us who you are and what you reveal require of us. And Lord, this morning we ask that as we read your word, help us to understand what it says accurately. And Lord, help us to respond to what it says appropriately. Lord, not only do we want to understand in our heads, but Lord, we want these words to get into our hearts and transform us from the inside out as your spirit does this work. So Lord, we we avail ourselves to you and ask that you would work in our lives through your word today. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, it was August of 2010, and I got a phone call from a pastor in Colorado. He was asking me if I would leave where I was living at the time, and if I would move here to Colorado to pastor this church. I was living in Hungary at the time, and I was pastoring a church there. My wife and I, we had a home there. Our kids were enrolled in school there. We had jobs and friends and really a good life. We weren't looking to get out of there by any means. But this man was asking us to leave all that behind, move halfway around the world, and pastor this church instead. And so I called him back, and I said, no, that's not something that we're interested in doing. And he said, okay. And we moved on with our lives. And then one year later, he called me again, and he asked the same question. Would I leave everything there in Hungary and move to Colorado to pastor this church? And at that time, we were in a different place in life, and I said, maybe. So here's what we did. We agreed to pray about it. And then along with praying, we also did some research. We began to run the numbers and consider all the variables that would come into account if we were to make a move like that, both on that end and variables over here, because we wanted to make an informed decision. But in the end, you know, after we had done all of our research and our due diligence, and we had figured out that at least on paper, this could work, even then, the, the step to move here required an act of faith, right? A step of faith in order to do this. And you know what? That's how it is with any big decision that you make in life. So whether you choose which college to go to or whether to buy a house or who to marry, you have to do your due diligence, right? You have to ask those important questions, run the numbers. Is this a good school that I can afford? Is this person a person who I'd like to spend my whole life with? Does this house have a good foundation? But you know what? No matter how much research you do, no matter how much you look into it and ask all the right questions and investigate all the right things, you know what? There's still a point where you have to take a step of faith. Because faith, the Bible tells us, is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. So even when you make an informed decision, 
there's still an aspect of faith, right? There's always some level on which you're having to trust in what someone says in, in something that you can't necessarily verify, right? So you're taking someone's word for it on some level and trusting them. And you know what we call that? We call that faith. In our study today, here's what we're going to see. We're going to see a series of people who made the most important decision of their entire lives. And they made that decision based on evidence that they had seen. And yet, even though they had seen the evidence, the decision still required a step of faith. Now, you've probably heard people say, seeing is believing. Or maybe you've said yourself, I'll believe it when I see it. But here's what I want you to see in our study today. We're going to see a series of people who saw the signs. They saw evidence for why they should believe in Jesus. And they did believe. But here's the question. What does that mean for us who have not seen Jesus, who have not seen the kinds of signs and miracles that they saw? How can we believe even if we haven't seen the same things that they saw? What I'd like to show you from our text today is that these people who saw these things and believed, despite what they saw, they still needed faith. And here's what I'm going to argue, that we today actually have more evidence. We have more reason to believe in Jesus, you and I today, than even those people did individually who saw these things with their own eyes. The title of today's message is Seeing and Believing. And what we're going to see in our passage today, our summary sentence, takeaway truth, our one-sentence summary, I'd love it if you'd write this down. It's also going to be our outline for studying this passage. Here's what it is today. Jesus' crucifixion and resurrection were the ultimate sign pointing to why we, who have not seen, should believe in him. I'll say it one more time, then we'll break it down into two parts, and we'll use it as our outline for studying this passage, all right? Jesus' crucifixion and resurrection were the ultimate sign pointing to why we, who have not seen, should believe in him. So the first part of that sentence is this. Jesus' crucifixion and resurrection were the ultimate sign. It says in the Gospel of John, chapter 20, verse 1, Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark. Mary Magdalene, we know from the Gospel accounts, was one of Jesus' closest followers. But the reason she came to the tomb early that Sunday morning was because Jesus had died. He had been killed by both the Jewish religious leaders and the Roman authorities, these two groups who generally didn't want anything to do with each other, didn't like each other. They teamed up to take Jesus down because each of these groups individually considered Jesus to be a threat to their power and their authority. And so they conspired together to capture him and then to have him executed publicly in the most brutal, inhumane way possible. Crucifixion. You know, crucifixion was so terrible that it was actually forbidden for a person who had Roman citizenship to be crucified, which meant that crucifixion was reserved only for slaves and those who had no citizenship. So slaves and amongst even slaves, the very worst, most despicable criminals. And yet here's what's so interesting. Jesus the Roman governor, Pontius Pilate, looked at Jesus and looked at the case that had been brought against him and declared publicly, I find no guilt with this man. There's nothing he did wrong that deserves for him to be punished in this way. 
And yet, because of the pressure of the people around him, Pontius Pilate gave in to that pressure, and he sent Jesus off to be executed by crucifixion. It was a terrible act of injustice. And yet, listen to how the Apostle Peter described the death of Jesus, this terrible act of injustice, only a few weeks after Jesus' crucifixion, his death by crucifixion. Here's what Peter said, speaking to a crowd in Jerusalem. He said, Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst. As you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. You catch what Peter's saying here? On the one hand, he's saying that the way that Jesus was killed was an absolute injustice. He was killed by the hands of lawless men. But at the same time, even though it was an act of injustice, he also says, and yet Jesus' death was according to the plan and foreknowledge of God. And notice what Peter describes here, how he describes Jesus. He says, Jesus was a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders, and catch this word, signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. That's what we've been looking at here in this series for the past seven weeks. We've been looking at the signs that Jesus performed that are recorded for us in the Gospel of John. You see, as opposed to the other Gospel accounts, which tell us that Jesus performed miracles, John is unique in that he refers to Jesus' miracles, not as miracles, but he calls them signs. Now, that's really important because by telling us that Jesus' miracles were signs, John is telling us that Jesus' miracles served a purpose. You see, as signs, Jesus' miracles weren't just cool things that Jesus could do. Rather, they were signs pointing to who Jesus is and what Jesus came to do and what he has to offer you and how you can receive it. And what we've seen as we've gone through this study over these past several weeks is this, that each of these signs individually that John tells us about, each of these signs points us to a unique aspect. Each one shows us a unique aspect of who Jesus is and what he came to do. But now today, as we look at chapters 19 and 20, here we see the ultimate sign. Without this sign, none of the other signs would actually matter. Everything that Jesus has said, everything that Jesus has done up in this book, and you know what? Throughout all of history, all of human history has been leading up to this event that we read about here in chapters 19 and 20, Jesus' crucifixion and Jesus' resurrection. And as we're going to see, many of the people who saw these things take place they saw them, and they believed in Jesus as a result. So turn with me, if you will. Go back one chapter. From chapter 20, I want you to go to chapter 19 of the Gospel of John. And first of all, I want to show you how Jesus' crucifixion is a sign of who he was and what he came to do. In chapter 19, starting in verse 17, it says that they took Jesus and they went out bearing his own cross to the place called the place of the skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. And there they crucified him and with him two others, one on either side of them, either side and Jesus between them. When the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they took his garments and they divided them into four parts, one part for each soldier, also his tunic, 
But about his tunic, they said to one another, Let us not tear it, but let us cast lots for it to see whose it shall be. And this was done to fulfill the scripture which says, They divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. Listen, what John is telling us, especially in that last part where he says, This was done to fulfill this scripture. What John is telling us is that as Jesus was crucified, a series of things was taking place which were actually foretold hundreds of years before this by the Old Testament prophets. The specific scripture John is referring to is Psalm 22. You could check it out if you're interested. Psalm 22. Psalm 22 was written 700 years before Jesus was even born. And it describes how when the Messiah, this righteous man who would be sent by God, when the Messiah would come, Psalm 22 describes how he would be attacked, betrayed, tortured, and killed. And check out what it says. Here's what it says in Psalm 22. Dogs encompass me. A company of evildoers encircles me. They have pierced my hands and my feet. I can count my bones. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them. And for my clothing, they cast lots. Now, here's what's interesting. Psalm 22, what it describes is it's describing a crucifixion. Notice, they pierced my hands. They pierced my feet. They stare and gloat over me. You know what? When it says, I was encompassed by dogs, the word dogs is a Jewish euphemism for Gentiles. This actually, if you remember in the Gospels, Jesus actually has a conversation with a Gentile woman about this phrase that Jewish people would call Gentiles dogs. And so this idea, being surrounded by dogs, it refers to being surrounded by Gentiles, meaning non-Jews. And so look at the picture here. Here's Jesus. He's surrounded by Gentile Romans who have pierced his hands, pierced his feet. They're staring at him. They're gloating over him. They're casting lots for his clothing. Every single part of this psalm is being fulfilled as Jesus is being crucified. But you know what's even more interesting? This psalm was written hundreds of years before crucifixion was even invented as a practice. You see, it's a prophetic message describing what would happen to the Messiah. It's describing a crucifixion before crucifixion was even invented, and it was a prophetic message saying what was going to happen. And do you know how this psalm begins, Psalm 22? It begins with these words. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Does that sound familiar to any of you? Those are the same words that Jesus cried out as he hung upon the cross. You see, as Jesus cried out in agony and he said these words from the cross, you have to understand the Jewish people who were within earshot, who heard him say these words, it would have immediately jogged their memory. Like when you're in the grocery store and you hear a song from your childhood come over the system and it it brings back all these memories. It would have jogged their memory back to Psalm 22. You see, Jesus' death, the way that it took place was in fulfillment of the things that had been prophesied long before. And this is why in Acts chapter 13, we're told that when Jesus was crucified, it says when they had carried out, check this out, all that was written of him. Where was it written of him? In the Old Testament by the prophets. They took him down from the tree and they laid him in a tomb. See, there were prophecies in the Old Testament which talked about what would happen to the Messiah when he came. And they were fulfilled 
during Jesus' crucifixion. And this is why in John chapter 19, if you look at verses 28 and 29, if you look at verses 36 and 37, they talk, John mentions specific things that happened during Jesus' crucifixion, which fulfilled Old Testament prophecies. And what John is telling us is, look, the way that Jesus died fulfilled all of these prophecies. This is a sign that Jesus is the Messiah, that Jesus is God come to earth in order to rescue his people, which is why it is so significant that John tells us in chapter 19, verse 30, that right before Jesus died, he declared, it is finished. In other words, as Jesus hung on the cross, he was accomplishing something. He was accomplishing something for us. And as he died, it was completed. It was finished. So the way that Jesus died was a sign. It was a sign of who he was and what he came to do. And this is why in the Gospel of Mark, chapter 15, we're told that as Jesus died, as he died on the cross, that there was a Roman centurion, a Roman soldier, who was standing there in front of him as Jesus died. And as Jesus died and breathed his last, it says that this man declared in himself, because he saw the way that Jesus died, he declared, truly, this man was the Son of God. So this centurion, remember I told you there's a series of people in this text who see the signs, to see the evidence, and they believe. This Roman centurion was the first of those people who saw what happened to Jesus. They understood the sign. They understood what was happening, and they believed. So let me just walk you through this. What did this centurion see exactly that caused him to believe? Well, the other Gospels tell us that during the time that Jesus was on the cross, for three hours, from noon until three o'clock in the afternoon, for three hours, deep darkness descended over all the earth, right in the middle of the day. And then we read that as Jesus was on the cross, he began to cry out to the Father, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? This soldier would have heard those words. And then as Jesus breathed his last and died, it says that an earthquake shook the ground and even broke the rocks. In the Bible, darkness is a sign of judgment. Remember, even in the plagues in Egypt, one of the plagues that came right before the end, the penultimate one was a plague of darkness. Do you remember? When, and also, earthquakes in the Bible are often correlated with acts of God and, and revelations of supernatural events. Like when God goes, uh, when God appears to Moses on Mount Sinai to give him the law, it says that the whole mountain shook violently. And so having seen these things happen, having heard this, having felt this, seen these signs, this man believed that truly Jesus is the Son of God. But look, not only was Jesus' death a sign of who he was and what he came to do, so was his resurrection. So come back with me to chapter 20 and look at verse 1. Let's just walk through these first few verses. We read that Mary Magdalene, when she arrived at the tomb that Sunday morning, she found the stone that guarded the entrance to the tomb. It had been rolled away. And so she went and she got some of Jesus' disciples to tell them what she had seen so they could come and see it for themselves. And so Peter and John, the same John who wrote this book, they ran to the tomb to see what had happened for themselves. And as they looked inside, they saw that Jesus' body wasn't there. In fact, the only thing that was there, left inside that tomb, 
were the linen cloths which were used to wrap the body. And those linen cloths, were not only were they left behind, but they were folded up neatly. Now, people ask me sometimes, what's, what's the deal with the linen cloths being folded up neatly? Like, what, why is that significant? Why, it's actually mentioned three times there in the text. Why is that significant? Well, the reason it's significant is because grave robbers or vandals would not have taken the time to, first of all, remove the linens. They wouldn't have done that. And secondly, they wouldn't have stacked them nicely. First of all, because grave robbers would have been in a hurry to not get caught. They would have wanted to get away, so they wouldn't have taken the time to do that. But more importantly, anyone who was going to steal a body, if it was a dead body, they would have wanted to keep the the burial linens on the body. And the reason is because what they would do is they would put these burial linens. They would put them, soak them in ointments or, or put ointments on them before they put them on the body. And the effect of these ointments was to reduce smell and to kind of preserve the body, kind of like if you could think of a, a mummy. That was essentially what they were doing. And anyone who would want to steal a dead body, they would not have wanted to remove those linens because if you did, you would end up with a rotten, foul-smelling corpse on your hands within a few days. And so they, would have wanted, they wouldn't have done that. So they would not have removed the linens if they were stealing the body. In other words, the only reason why you would remove burial cloths from a body is if that person was no longer dead. The fact that they were folded up neatly and stacked was a sign that this wasn't the work of grave robbers, but that Jesus had risen from the dead. And we're told there by John himself in verse 8, he says that these things, when he went into the tomb and he saw these things for himself with his own eyes, he says, I saw them and I believed. So here's the second man. He sees and he believes. And then for the rest of chapter 20, we see a series of meetings where Jesus seeks out people, different people, and they see Jesus alive. And because they see him alive, they believe that he is who he claimed to be, the Son of God, the Messiah, God himself come to save us. So Jesus first appears to Mary Magdalene after this, and she sees him and believes. Then Jesus appears to the disciples, and they see him and they believe. But then we come to verse 24. And that leads us to the second part of our two-part sentence here. Jesus' crucifixion and resurrection, they were the ultimate sign pointing to why we who have not seen should believe in him. Here's what it says in verse 24. Now Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails, and place my finger in the mark of the nails, and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Now, so we don't know why Thomas wasn't there, but for some reason, on that first Sunday, that first Sunday night meeting, when Jesus met with his disciples, Thomas wasn't there. But the other disciples who were there, they could not wait to tell Thomas about what they had seen. As soon as they got the chance, they told him, Thomas, guess what? It was amazing. Jesus came. We were in the room together. Jesus came. He was right there in our midst, and he told us that he had resurrected from the dead. He showed us the marks in his hands, the mark in his side. And Thomas, it was really him. you got to believe us, man. We saw it with our own eyes. But you know what Thomas said? He said, no way. 
No way. Not only do I not believe this happened, I will never believe unless I can touch him myself. You know, we often refer to Thomas as Doubting Thomas. It's kind of his nickname. Now, on the one hand, he didn't really doubt, did he? It's more of a refusal. It wasn't so much that he doubted what they said. He simply refused to believe. Thomas looked at Peter, for example, and he said, Peter, I've known you for a really long time, and generally you're a pretty trustworthy guy. But I refuse to believe that what you're saying is true. I do not believe you. John... I don't believe you either. James, I especially don't believe you, right? But listen, there were 10 men. He went through 10 disciples who were all saying the same thing. Men that he had spent every day with for the last three and a half years. He, he knew these men. He trusted them, but he refused to believe what they were saying, believe their testimony. And he said, the only way I will ever believe is if Jesus lets me see him myself and I can put my hands in his wounds. You know what? I think there are a lot of people today who do something really similar. You know what they do? They say, I have this specific thing that I want. I want God to jump through this hoop for me. Right? So they'll say, unless God does this specific thing that I want him to do. God, here's the criteria. You jump through these hoops for me. This is what you need to do if you want me to follow you. Right? We set up these criteria and we say, unless God jumps through my hoops, I'm not going to follow him. I'm not going to believe. Friends, let me just say, that is not a good attitude to have by any means. That doesn't, that doesn't show any form of trust or surrender at all. And yet, in spite of... of Thomas's obstinate attitude, Jesus was patient and gracious towards him. And it says in verse 26, eight days later, his disciples were inside again, and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, put your finger here and see my hands. Put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. So Jesus came to them once again, and this time Thomas was there. And Jesus goes over to Thomas, and ever so gently, he rebukes him for his previous attitude. Right? He says, Thomas, put your finger in my side. Put your hand in my side. In other words, Thomas, I heard what you said, man. I heard what you said. And you know what? Here you go. Go ahead. Do it. Jesus invites him. Look at my wounds. Jesus' wounds were the sign of what Jesus had done for Thomas. In order for Thomas to have assurance about who Jesus was and what Jesus had done for him, Jesus said, look at my wounds. And friends, you know that this is what Jesus would say to you today as well. He would say to you, if you need assurance that I really love you, that I really care about you, that I really, that I really care about what you're going through, that I really love you, and here's what I want you to do. Look to my wounds. Look to my wounds. If you ever doubt whether God really loves you or cares about you, then look to his wounds. The Bible tells us that the proof that God really loves you is that Jesus Christ gave his life for you. Look to his wounds if you need to be reassured that he actually loves you, that he is actually full of grace and full of compassion towards you. And you'll see it there. And look at what Jesus says to Thomas at the end of verse 27. He says, Thomas, do not disbelieve, but believe. Jesus wanted Thomas to move from doubt to belief. 
In fact, he's commanding him to believe. Do you catch that? It's an imperative. Thomas, don't disbelieve. Believe. It's a command. It's an instruction. He's telling him to do this. You know what? The fact that Jesus told Thomas to believe, it shows us that there is a way in which believing is a choice that you have to make. What this shows us is that although doubt may be a station that you pass through at different times in your life, right? We all pass through the station of doubt. It's not meant to be the destination where you remain. Doubt is something that we might all pass through, but it's a station you pass through. It's not meant to be the destination where you remain. You know, I have a lot of family members who uh, identify as agnostic. The word agnostic, by the way, in Greek, it means without knowledge, right? So a person who says that they are agnostic, that's a person who says when it comes to God, when it comes to ultimate things, eternal things, they say, I don't know. Right? Who is God? I don't know. Right? Maybe there is a God, but I don't know. I don't know who he is. I don't know what he wants. I don't know what he desires or requires of me. But notice this. The whole point of this book, the Gospel of John, has been to show us how God has revealed himself to us in the person of Jesus Christ. How he has given us signs and evidences that he is who he claims to be, right? And because he is who he says he is, we should believe in him and put our trust in him. The Bible makes it clear that there is a difference between doubt and unbelief, right? There's a difference between doubt and unbelief. Doubt is a struggle to believe. It's a struggle to believe. It's a person who says, I would believe, but I have some, I have some serious, like some sincere questions that I just need to have answered. Whereas unbelief, on the other hand, is a refusal to believe. You know, sincere doubts, they're essentially unanswered questions, aren't they? So if you have a doubt, you say, here's, my, here's the thing I'm struggling with. This is my unanswered question. That's what it means to have a doubt. But did you know the word question comes from the Latin word for quest. A quest. Do you know what a quest is? A quest is a journey. It's an adventure that you set out on. And why? Because you are diligently seeking something. You're looking for something. But you know what? The goal of a quest is to actually find the thing that you're looking for. And so we don't discourage people from asking questions. Quite the opposite. We don't discourage people from asking questions. We encourage people to keep asking, keep seeking, keep knocking, because we believe that truly deeper faith calls out to us from the other side of our sincere questions. We believe that God will be found by those who genuinely seek him. And yet, here's the other part I want to show you. Just as Jesus told Thomas, though, the goal is not to remain perpetually in a place of uncertainty. The goal is to move from uncertainty and doubt to belief. And that's exactly what Thomas does. Look at verse 28. Thomas answered him, my Lord and my God. Rather than remaining or continuing in this place of, of unbelief or, or in this place of uncertainty, Thomas, having seen the evidence, he doesn't hesitate any longer. He puts down his yes. He actually makes a confession of faith that is greater than the confession of any of the other disciples up until this point. He says, Jesus, not only are you my Lord, my master, but you are my God. You are the object of my worship. 
Thomas moved from doubt and uncertainty. He moved to belief. And it's important for us to consider how that takes place. We need to consider that for our own sakes, for our own lives. How does that take place? How does a person move from doubt and uncertainty? How do you move from doubt to belief? Well, look at the pattern that we've seen here in chapters 19 and 20. The pattern is people saw the signs and they believed. They saw the signs and they believed. Seeing and believing. The signs were evidence, like in a courtroom, right? An attorney makes their case by showing the evidence to prove that what they're saying is true. And that's what we've seen over these past seven weeks. In each of these studies, we've seen the signs that Jesus performed, these evidences that Jesus gave. And in response to these evidences, the people who saw them, many of them believed. Now you might say, well, sure, it was easy for them to believe. They saw these incredible things with their own eyes. I would probably believe too. If I could see those kinds of things for myself, then I would probably believe too. But you know what? Not everybody who saw these signs believed. We've seen that throughout this past study. Have you noticed that? Do you remember the Pharisees? Over the past several weeks, we saw over and over how the Pharisees would see the signs that Jesus performed, and they didn't even, they didn't even dispute them. How could they? They saw a man who was blind, and now he could see. They saw a man who was lame, and now he can walk. They don't even dispute that a miracle has taken place. And yet, even in the face of this mountain of evidence that Jesus is who he claimed to be, that he is the Messiah, that he is God come to us to rescue us, even in the face of this mounting evidence, rather than responding in belief, they responded in unbelief. Even in our study today, remember the centurion? He, he saw the darkness, he heard Jesus' words, he felt the, the earthquake, and he believed. But you know what? He was one of many Roman soldiers there that day. What about all those other Roman soldiers? They heard the same thing. They saw the darkness. They felt the earth shake. And yet not all of them chose to believe. Not all of them responded in belief. And this is why what Jesus says to Thomas next is so important. Jesus said to him, verse 29, Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet believed. You know, all of us today, we're in that category, that second category that Jesus describes. Even since, ever since Jesus ascended into heaven and left this earth for the past almost 2,000 years, everybody who has believed in Jesus has believed based on the evidence that is recorded for us here in the Bible and through other historical records. You see, all of us, you and me, we're essentially, you know where we are? We're essentially in the same position that Thomas was in after Jesus appeared to the other disciples that first time when Thomas wasn't there. That's the position that you and me are in, right? Think about it. Thomas hadn't seen Jesus with his own eyes, and yet he did have the reliable, consistent testimony of others who had seen it who were telling him what happened. That's essentially the same position that we are in today as well. And here's what I would tell you. If you look at all the, all the signs, all the people in this passage who saw the signs, the evidences, and therefore they believed, I would argue that you and I right now, you and I, we actually have more reason to believe than they did, even though they saw these things with their own eyes. Here's why. You and me sitting here today, we have more collective evidence 
for believing in Jesus than any of these individual people ever did who saw these particular signs at one time. Because here's the deal. We don't just know about one sign, right? They saw one sign here, one sign there. We don't just know about one sign. We know about all the signs that were performed that we read about here in the Gospels. We understand all the ways in which Jesus' crucifixion and resurrection fulfilled these hundreds of years old Old Testament prophecies. We have the testimony of history, the proof of archaeology that shows us things like, like the fact that Jesus' body was never discovered, and we have the historical record that those who claimed that they saw these things, how did they react when they were persecuted, when, when they were, you know, pinned in a corner? Do you really believe that this happened? Did it happen? And they shed their blood and gave their lives because they believed that this actually happened. See, unlike people back then, as privileged as they were to have seen these things with their own eyes, you know what? We have a privilege today as well. We have the privilege of being able to see the whole picture. In other words, it isn't that we have less evidence than they did to believe. We actually have more reason to believe, more evidence than any of those people did individually. And yet here's the thing. Once you've seen the evidence, there still comes a point where you actually have to take a step. You have to take the step of trusting in Jesus and surrendering yourself to Jesus as your Savior and as your Lord. And that's why John says here at the conclusion of this book, he says, these things that I have written to you, I have written these things so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. That's a simple challenge that goes out to you right now. Will you, having seen the evidence about who Jesus is and what he accomplished and what he offers you, will you now believe and put your trust in him? See, believing in Jesus, it isn't just something that you do once in your life and then you tick that box and say, okay, I never have to do that again. No, believing in Jesus means to trust in him, to cling to him, to rely on him. And that's not just something that you do one time and only one time in your life. That is an ongoing walk with him. It's an ongoing trust, an ongoing reliance on him. And you know what? It's not always easy to trust in Jesus, but it is simple. It is simple what God's asking of you. It's not easy, but it is simple. And here's, here's how simple it is. It's as simple as A, B, C. A, accept. B, believe. And C, commit. Accept, believe, and commit. Accept that Jesus is who the Bible tells us he is. The Savior, the Redeemer. God come to us to rescue us by being our perfect substitute in life and in death. B, believe. Put your trust in him, both in what he has done for you and trusting in him for what you need today. And see, commit, surrender your life and everything you are to him. I encourage you to do that today. Jesus' resurrection and crucifixion, they were the ultimate sign pointing to why we, who have not seen, should believe in him. Would you please bow your heads and let's pray as we take communion and conclude our service. You have been listening to a message from Whitefields Community Church in Longmont, Colorado. For more information and audio content, visit us at whitefieldschurch.com. Make sure to tap the subscribe button if you would like to have new messages delivered to your device every week when they are released. 
If you have been blessed by this message and would like to support our ministry, you can do so by leaving us a review on Apple Podcasts or by giving a donation to our church on our website at whitefieldschurch.com.